Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. And welcome to, I don't know, is this a new era, a new season of the LawCast? This feels like something brand new. Yeah, let's call it that, because while you guys haven't really noticed anything, there's actually been, like, weeks since we've actually recorded anything other than, like, bonus content for you guys, so... It's all available on the LawCast Patreon page. Yeah, by the way, we haven't really hyped that up on here, by the way, but we do have a Patreon, and we're up to already two bonus episodes, and we're about to drop a third. So just so you know, if you're interested in more LawCast material, hop on that Patreon page and get you some. What can they find on that page? Why, Steve, they could find, as long as they donate $5 a month, which is a paltry sum in comparison to the level of content that we're giving you, let me tell you. Uh, They can find uh, our coverage of the very first pilot episode of SmackDown. Not the first episode of SmackDown, but the pilot, the forgotten weird half-house show pilot that was one of the worst shows that we've ever seen. And we have revived So You Think You Can Book, which is uh, Steve taking a shot at rebooking the famous Starcade 97 pay-per-view and trying to make it make some sense. In my opinion, he fixed a lot of the problems, but boy, he had a lot of trouble along the way, especially when I stroked my beard, brother, and didn't want to do business. (laughs) Yeah, if you've ever wanted me to hear me debate Cuse role-playing as Hulk Hogan, that's the show for you. I literally grew out my Fu Manchu so I could stroke it and be like, doesn't work for me, brother. (laughs) Yeah, in the interim, Cuse has turned heel and become Hollywood Hogan. God, it's been so, so long in the making. And then uh, I believe in a week, because they've are, we've already blown past our goal for that one, we're actually going to unleash the uh, Law & Cuse Talk About 90 Sports podcast that we've always jokingly said we were going to do. We literally did it. The first half of 1990, we covered all the sports, all the ridiculous goings on. This thing could have been like eight hours long. How we managed to shorten it to a normal time, I don't know. Yeah, that was a ton of fun. So all that and more to come on the LawCast Patreon page. Yeah, we genuinely genuinely didn't think anyone was going to give us a dime. So the fact that any of you guys have is truly unbelievable. Please, like, if you have any interest whatsoever, we, we love pumping out new stuff for you. But here, right now, for free, we've got the pilot episode of WCW Monday Nitro. So I don't know exactly when this is going to drop, but... We are recording this uh, before AEW makes its Wednesday night premiere, Um, but we wanted to kind of revisit WCW launching Nitro as kind of a compare and contrast. Now, WCW was in a very different spot than where AEW is at the moment. In an an interesting contrast, WCW was a much more established company. They had been WCW since like 1989, 1990. The roots of Jim Crockett promotions went back for decades before that. But AEW is a much cooler and hotter brand than WCW was at this point, even though WCW at this point has some of the biggest stars in wrestling. They've got Hulk Hogan. They've got Macho Man Randy Savage, Sting, Lex Luger, strong roster. Um, AEW has a strong roster, too, but they just don't have the same collection of stars that WCW had. I guess the closest corollary that I can draw for the WCW situation is, you remember when Hulk Hogan came to Impact? Yeah. Like, when he first came there and he brought all the new people in? That's a show we should cover at some point, too. That would be fascinating. And it had been established as, like, a mediocre secondary brand for a very long time. But when he came in and there was all this interest, 
if they had gotten like prime time cable TV, like a big thing, then that would have been like the equivalent of this. Like, oh, this has been a crappy brand for 10 years, but oh, there's something a little bit exciting going on. And now they're on cable. Maybe we should check that out. That's this. AEW is something totally different. Like they're launching like from outer space. No company has ever launched as a national promotion ever. It has never been done. Like it's completely unthinkable that it could be done. And here they are doing it. And they've already done more. I mean, they've drawn all of their shows so far have drawn more fans than any TNA show in history ever did. Right. Oh, AEW is already at this point, the number three promotion in the history of professional wrestling. I know that that's baffling to hear. And in, in, in America. Yeah, in America. Like, yeah, like but, they're not bigger than New Japan has ever been in Japan. But. No, but that's also a different way of grading. Like, they don't really do, like, pay-per-view buys, and they don't really do, like, streams and stuff like that. It's a very different way of judging. That's a lot more by the house there than it is about anything else. But, like, in this case, like, they are already where WCW was towards the end and growing. So... That is so astronomically bigger than anything has been since WCW closed. It's not even close. Yeah, I, it's an incredibly exciting time for wrestling. 1995 was not such an exciting time for wrestling. No, it sucked ass. Particularly in America. Uh, the WWF is at, like, one of its lowest points. Uh, in September 1995, they run an in-your-house pay-per-view in Saginaw, Michigan. Um, yeah, I, I got nothing but love for the Mitten State, but they, <laughs> Saginaw doesn't even really get house shows anymore, and they were doing a pay-per-view. I assume it was just, like, the in-your-house thing was something they kind of threw together. It was probably just they were going to be doing a house show in Saginaw that day anyway, so they made it a pay-per-view. But that's still, that's the kind of place they were running for TV and pay-per-views at that point. I mean, 1995, the worst year for the WWF's business ever. Uh, they bought them out in 95. Well, let me ask you a question, too. And, like, this is kind of something that doesn't get talked about a lot. The business was on its ass at this point, both for WCW and for WWE, but... If business had been good for WWE, could Nitro have succeeded the way it did? I still think there was always that appetite for something different. Um, right. WCW had it. There was a lot of crossover, but there was definitely a big chunk of people who were just fans of WCW. They were just fans. It was an older fan base, more Southern, you know just a little bit different than the WWF's fan base. Obviously there was crossover. There surely became more crossover as WCW got more popular and Bischoff made it less of a Southern promotion, you know, signed WWF stars like Hogan and Savage and promoted them. But there was always, there was always a distinct group of WCW fans. And when the WWF bought WCW, those fans did not come along for the ride. You know, they stayed away and some of them became TNA fans. I think, I think at least some of them did. Like some of them have pretty much just been floating in the ether ever since. Like a lot of, when you hear about all these people, like you meet them on a daily basis. They're like, yeah, I used to watch wrestling back in the nineties, but fuck it. I never watched after that. And it got lame. A lot of those were WCW fans. A lot of those people just didn't like WWE. If WCW had bought WWE, I wouldn't have followed over to there. Like, I was a WWE guy. The big question right now is, how many of those people, are some of those people going to give AEW a shot? 
because of the nostalgia of it being on TNT or that Rhodes name, you know, the presence of a big star from the 90s like Chris Jericho. How many of those people are good? Is AEW just going to draw a subsection of WWE's fan base, which is what TNA more or less did? They had some people were just TNA fans, but I don't think there were that many of them. No. Or are they going to be able to grow themselves and bring some new fans back? Well, it's interesting because AEW and especially Cody Rhodes has been very, very careful not to say the letters WCW in the lead up to this. And that's good because that's a dead brand. It's not it's not anything that you should be glorifying or bringing back. But the shadow of WCW kind of hovers over the AEW enterprise. It's we sort of like so in primetime on TNT and even the name Dynamite recalls yes. night. I just I can't help but think. I can't help but think of WCW. It feels like this is the Big Bang thing that like Eric Bischoff wanted to do, yeah. doesn't it? Like this is the fresh start. This is the new chance, new talent, fresh talent, not the same old tired assholes uh, with one notable exception, <laughs> but like, and in the hands of a Rhodes, like it's, they're not saying it, but I feel like there's something very familiar and comfortable here for any old WCW fan for sure. Yeah. And I think we'll see from this show they could t- they could learn a lot from what WCW did on this show, and we'll get into that. But first, let's get into the backstory. Um, by the middle of 1995, WCW has come a very long way under Eric Bischoff's leadership. Like Eric Bischoff took over a company that was dying in 1993. It was a company that honestly should have been out of business years before, and with any sense you would have thought would have been out of business in the coming years. But because of Ted Turner's loyalty, he stuck with it. And, you know, I don't think Bischoff ever gets enough credit for the work he did even before they really got hot in 1996 with the NWO, the work he did just to keep this company alive, to stop them from losing money, to get them credibility with um, the Turner front office and allow them to get Nitro on the air, to make the investments they needed to in production, to get the money to sign guys like Hogan and Savage. That all takes place like 1993, early 1994, and that kind of gets ignored. It's actually really funny because Eric Bischoff is given too much credit and not nearly enough in numerous ways. Like You'll hear people be like, all he ever did was get Nitro on the air and he didn't do shit after that, which is ridiculous. And then people will be like, oh, he's a genius and he challenged the wrestling gods. No, like he was a very smart television executive. He was a very smart producer. And then he got well over his head by trying to be more than that and couldn't maintain a success. It's okay to be that. From 1993 to 1995, Eric Bischoff makes some incredibly savvy television decisions. Like, the thing that he should get the most credit for, of anything, is stopping their house show business, which was absolutely failing. Moving to the Disney soundstage. Which Which is one of the things he gets the most shit for, is the Disney tapings. And it was... Such the right thing to do. This yeah. drives me crazy. Yeah, like TNA did the same thing, and maybe if they had stopped doing it at some point and moved on to something else, like the Impact Zone wasn't inherently a bad idea. They just never left that idea. But like he moves to the Disney soundstage so they can shoot the thing, and it doesn't look like shit anymore. Yeah. Because it's if you have watched, got, it's always got a crowd. It's perfectly produced. Um, 
it's early they're making they're getting i mean they're making money doing it they're getting i don't know if they, i don't remember the exact arrangement but at least they're not losing disney's at least covering the production or paying them to do it because disney just wants something for people people to be able to do to get out of the heat from the park for a little while and something that bischoff understood and he was kind of ahead of his time with this was how important branding was and yeah. this is something that vince never really understood until like the mid thousands we're all that, a brand it's important to be seen with Disney. It's important to be seen with Turner. It, it, those are the most important yeah. assets that you have. Those are the things that get you Hogan. Those are the things that get you in the door. It's when you send him a letter on Turner, like letterhead with a Disney symbol at the bottom. And he's like, oh, shit. Like, actually, those are some those businesses aren't going anywhere. Like, you're not just some nobody from nowhere. Like, that's yeah. very important. And you could work for WCW, you could get into Disney movies. You could get into Turner movies. Yes. Like, there, there were more opportunities. And also the best thing that Bischoff was, was he was able to get, like, relationships going with upper executives. Not that they loved him, because a lot of them actually hated his guts. But, like, he was actually able to talk to them on their level in a way that got him access to more things than other people did. It's not like Bill Watts was going to be taking meetings with Ted Turner and getting Nitro on the air. No. As much as, yeah, Eric Bischoff is maybe not, like, the most corporate guy in the world compared to, like, the animal that Bill Watts was. Bill Watts, who, like, would carry a gun in the office. Bill Watts, who would take a piss out the window. Like, at least Eric Bischoff would, like, shave and maybe put on a nice shirt if he had a meeting with some top executives. Eric Bischoff was just the right man at the right time. He was halfway between being a wrestling person and a marketing person. He understood how to sell television. He understood that he had to get Hogan. Like, without Hogan, he had nothing. Like, nobody was going to care about Sting on a national level. He didn't have the tools to make any of his people known on that level. Even, like, guys like Randy Savage, Ric Flair, who were known to some degree. He needed something to get attention. He needed a reason for people to be coming to him. And Hulk Hogan was that answer, and he got it. Yeah. Credit to him, he did it. He lands Hogan in the middle of 1994. That immediately puts a jolt into WCW's business. He gets Savage a few months later at the end of 1994. He basically got Savage for free once you take into account that he also got the Slim Jim sponsorship to come with Savage from the WWF, that was worth like as much as they were paying Savage. So he landed one of the biggest stars in wrestling basically for free. It's so amazing to me that Vince, this is how little Vince understood about branding. Like Macho Man Randy Savage was on TV every week shilling Slim Jim. Like that was a multi-million dollar deal. And Vince never got a piece of it. Yeah. They Slim Jim, I think, briefly stuck with the WBF and they tried to use Diesel as the pitch guy. But believe it or not, that didn't work. Nothing did for big old Kevin. Only Randy Savage can do Slim Jim. Yep. Um, so <sighs> business is improving. The company is on the brink of profitability, but they're still lagging behind the WBF. And to really understand what happens next, you have to understand the history between Ted Turner and Vince McMahon, which we've covered before, but we'll do it again in brief. Um, wrestling helped make TBS, the Superstation, a powerhouse. Uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling was on the air um, from 1972 on. 
um, on TBS, you know, Saturday night, six o'clock. This is like one of the cornerstones of TBS. It's like that and Braves baseball were their two big things. Not just the two big things, the two only things. It was that and like Saved by the Bell reruns. So after that's been on the air for years, Vince McMahon buys out Georgia Championship Wrestling in 1984. He doesn't want the wrestlers or the intellectual property. He wants the time slot. Like he wants that six o'clock time slot on TBS. And we get what's called Black Saturday, July 14th, 1984. Vince McMahon appears on TBS to introduce the WWF and, you know, just sort of reveal that they are taking over this time slot. Um, According to kind of the Turner side of the story, Vince had assured Turner that he was going to put like a top quality show in this time slot. Instead, Turner got a rerun of the syndicated show All-American Wrestling. That's just highlights of poorly lit house show matches. And All-American Wrestling was already airing earlier in the week in most of the markets that TBS was in. So most people have already seen this by the time the show airs on Saturday night. Like they're just getting a good, they're getting the same show they've already seen. And the show is way worse than Georgia championship wrestling, which was a top quality studio wrestling show, which had, you know, quality matches, big live interviews every single week. Uh, the WWF TV pales in comparison at this point. And I do kind of want to clear up a misconception that like people always seem to think that Ted Turner had like a personal stake in the wrestling that he put on himself. Ted Turner does not give a shit about what professional wrestling he's Ted Turner is not a wrestling fan. Ted Turner does not really watch the wrestling shows. Ted Turner is not watching Ric Flair matches with odd Ted Turner's just loyal to what brought him to the dance. That's all. That's the relationship between Ted Turner and wrestling. He always wanted to keep it on because it kept him on when it mattered. So like Ted Turner has always been, he didn't understand what it was he was going to be getting from WWE because, and Vince sold him a bill of goods because that's what Vince did to people at that time. Yeah. So the ratings are a disaster. Complaints flood in. It becomes clear after a few months, this isn't going to work. Turner, First sells a Sunday afternoon time slot to Bill Watts, and then he makes a deal with Ole Anderson to put Ole's like spin-off company, Championship Wrestling from Georgia, on the Superstation on Saturday mornings. Like he's screwing Vince over here. Like clearly, when Vince signed this agreement, Vince's belief is we're going to be the only wrestling show on TBS. But Turner's pissed. And you got to understand what Vince thinks too. Is that like when he buys this time slot? He's basically buying out the last competition that he realistically has. Like, Vern is not actual competition on ESPN or whatever the fuck he's doing at this point, if he's even still there. This is it. Like, that. Like there's not that much that he really needs to worry about on television. So when Turner turns around and starts giving a bunch of other people TV time, he's like, well, what the fuck? I thought I won. Yeah, and then Vince makes... Probably a critical error here in that he sells his time slot to Jim Crockett Promotions, which was clearly the. I mean, I'm trying to think of exactly where world class is already declining at this point. Um, Crockett is the last competition realistically standing here. And they, at that point, they're not really close competition, no matter what. It doesn't matter what anybody will try to sell you at this point. Like, it's. 
they're probably the second biggest territory. But at this point, WWE is like an untouchable behemoth. Like they're they're already getting to that point. So when he sells this, he basically creates his own competition by accident. Yeah, a, a decision that will reverberate around the wrestling world for a decade to come. Um, uh, three years later, Crockett's on the verge of bankruptcy due to their own stupidity and you know some hardball tactics by McMahon. Ted Turner comes in as the angel investor and buys out the Crockett's. And this is, in my view, the beginning of World Championship Wrestling. They don't. They start initially. They just rename their TV that, and later they rename the company that. Um, but to, to me, WCW begins at the end of 1988 when Turner buys the company. It's genuinely incredible that WCW was ever given a chance to succeed because from the moment that Turner buys it, it's almost 10 years before he's seeing a dime of profit from this. It's literally just like a benevolent, nice thing for him to do. Like he gets nothing out of this at all. Yeah. Well, it's a mix of things. So he's got some just kind of emotional attachment to wrestling because he is crediting it for helping him build his empire. Some of it is he just wants content for his TV station. He knows wrestling draws ratings. It's cheap to produce. And I think he wants to screw with Vince McMahon. Like there's some, there's some petty billionaire grudge going on here. Yeah. We kind of glossed over that. Like we went by it kind of fast, but the fact that Vince kind of screwed Ted, so Ted kind of screwed Vince. And these are two, very powerful alpha males. Yeah. And they and you've each got each other to this day. Yeah. Ted Turner, you know, Vince thinks he's the Southern redneck. Ted Turner thinks Vince McMahon is a Yankee elitist prick, even though he grew up in a trailer park in North Carolina. Vince has very much embraced the Greenwich lifestyle by this point in his life. You can probably trace so much of Vince McMahon's actions throughout the yeah. 90s to him desperately wanting to get to a point where he's on equal footing with ted turner like it, it becomes pathological like ted turner almost represents like a weird southern version of his dad or that he's just gotta beat so fast forward seven years uh turner has stood by wcw through thick and thin when almost anyone else would have canceled them um Eric Bischoff's office gets a call from Turner's office requesting a meeting. This is, according to Bischoff, like literally the only time he had like a one-on-one meeting with Ted Turner. Like he would see him occasionally like at stuff. He'd see him at like the company Christmas party or, you know, maybe a Hawks game, Braves game or something. But he never meets with Ted Turner. Ted Turner is too big a deal for this. Ted Turner is running CNN, is running Warner Brothers, He's not dealing with Eric Bischoff. Like Harvey Schiller is Eric Bischoff's contact, but Turner calls him in for this meeting. It's also very important to put this in context because this Turner wasn't really a corporation by the standards that we understand them today. It was very much like a cult of personality. The closest modern parallel, because this doesn't really exist anymore, is maybe like Apple with Steve Jobs, but like one person so closely directs the everything that happens on every in every branch of the company right like it's all ted turner's vision like one man literally leads this company that's not something that really exists anymore like things of every company has kind of bought every other company to such an extent that everything's run by 25 different boards and ceos and whatever but this is very much a maverick company (laughs) 
Turner will become that when they merge with uh, AOL a couple years after this, and Turner loses all his power, and that is ultimately one of the major factors in WCW's demise. Yeah, but the only reason WCW can be this, because no board of directors ever would have allowed all of this to happen, but it's just... Fuck no! No! Like, it's like, oh, you've lost millions of dollars for years? Yeah, let's keep you on the air. It's just that every decision eventually comes to Ted. And it's all it all comes down to Ted. So that's how you get this completely unprecedented, ridiculous meeting that is historical in every way. Yeah. So Bischoff thinks he's about to get yelled at because he's made a deal with Rupert Murdoch uh, to show WCW in China on one on a Murdoch TV station. And Ted Turner and Rupert Murdoch are longtime rivals. Uh, Murdoch has not yet launched Fox News, but that will become a thing a few years after this to only escalate uh, the issue there that Murdoch, you know, goes into business against Turner and ultimately you know, kicks his ass. Um, but, but it's also fascinating that, like, this is the deal that puts them in the black for the first time in their yes. history. <laughs> yeah, that's what made them their first dollar of profit was getting on TV in China. So he's marching into this meeting like, all right, well, Ted's going to yell at me, but I'm going to explain that I finally made the company profitable and everything's OK and please don't fire me and everything's great. <laughs> Turner instead goes in a totally different direction when he asks Bischoff, what's it going to take to beat Vince McMahon? Bischoff has not been anticipating this question. Um, I can relate to being asked a question like this that I never expected. And a good defensive tactic is ask them for something they'll never give you because it puts the onus back on them to say no. Yeah, this is one of those things where, like, you're in an interview, and they're just like, how much would you like to make? And you're like, um, a million dollars. <laughs> like, what the fuck do you mean, what would I like to make? Yeah. So Bischoff asks Turner for something he knows he's not going to get, which is an hour, you know, in prime time, head-to-head against McMahon on Monday nights. And shockingly, Turner just agrees to do it without even thinking. He just, like, turns to Harvey Schiller and is like, hey, you know, give Eric an hour on Monday nights on TNT. Let's kind of break down this legendary, it's almost like an urban legend, this moment. Because, first of all, what do you think it was that caused Ted Turner to need to do this? Did he like see the Nacho Man skits? Did he see Billionaire Ted? Is that uh, that hasn't was? that hasn't started yet. That starts. Oh, that's shit. that's that's the beginning of '96. That's in response to Nitro. Um, you know what I think it may have been? Wasn't Vince doing the like concern trolling letters around this time, like yeah. trying to fuck with the AOL merger? I guess that would have been around this time. Like something clearly spurns Ted. Something gets to Ted, and he's like. Fuck Vince McMahon. Let's kill him. Yeah. And like, I think they're they're looking for something for TNT. Like TNT at this point, TNT does have the NFL. They had Sunday Night Football uh, before it went to ESPN and then later to NBC. But I think they were just looking for something, you know, wrestling. You know, TBS has wrestling. Why doesn't TNT have wrestling too? Won't that help put TNT on the map? Maybe that's the part we don't see. Maybe Ted and Harvey are having a conversation before where Ted's like, well, let's put a WCW on on TNT. And Harvey's like, no, they're a secondary brand. They can't beat Vince McMahon. It'll make us look bad. And so they call in Eric and they're like, how can you beat him? What'll it take? And Eric asks for exactly the right thing, the thing they were already talking about. 
And that's why it's so easy. So this meeting is uh, June 5th, 1995. Nitro will launch um, just three months later, September 4th, 1995. That is not a long time to get all this shit together when you think about this, that they need a set, they need graphics, they need more talent, they need creatively, they need to figure out what they're going to do with another hour of TV and an hour of primetime live every week. Uh, This is a big endeavor they're launching here, and they don't have a lot of time to pull it together. Yeah, let's point this out. Um, Live television and wrestling isn't a thing. Like, there's no template for this. Like, the closest thing to a template for this show at all is Raw, and that's... Raw was initially live every week, but they cut that out. They cut it down to only one a month after a few weeks. Yeah, just like the expense and like the crazy production demands to make a weekly live broadcast is insane. And like they didn't there's nobody in WCW who understands how to tackle this. They're making it up from scratch. But I think it, Bischoff says he insisted it had to. That was his thing. Like, it's got to be live. If we're going to go, if we're going to compete with Vince, it's got to be a live show. Because he understood if he had live TV against Vince's taped TV, he could beat him. Because live, anything could happen. Here's the last part of Eric's brilliance. Because I'm not sure that Eric genuinely had a brilliant idea past 1995. He just kind of got lucked into some stuff. And then the creative was all Kevin Sullivan after that. So let's – this is his last great idea, is that he understood that he was had not even the slightest idea of what Vince McMahon did. He couldn't beat him creatively. He couldn't beat him at producing a wrestling show. It's just not possible. You can't – nobody can do what Vince McMahon does. Nobody ever has done what Vince McMahon does. you got to do something else. You have to. You have to do the opposite of what Vince is doing or something that Vince won't do because he's afraid to do it. You can't beat Vince at being Vince. you got to be somebody else. So Turner follows through on a commitment by giving them a substantial budget increase. They get new production staff. They get to build a top-quality set, you know, pyro, lights, um, you know, um, sign a bunch of new talent. Uh, some of the signings, Chris Benoit, Dean Malenko, Eddie Guerrero, Conan, Public Enemy, uh, Sabu and Jerry Lynn, although neither, old, both of those guys don't last long. Sabu literally makes a few appearances and then ends up going back to ECW. Jerry Lynn is around for a few months but ends up going to ECW. Um, they talked to Al Snow, but he ended up um, signing with the WWF. Shane Douglas's name came up. That didn't materialize. Ric Flair may have vetoed that one. Oh, yeah, I'm sure that he did. Man, <laughs> getting involved with Conan is the smartest fucking thing. Yeah, and they had no idea how much that was going to pay off, that they were going to get all the luchadors through Conan. And, I mean, like, it's kind of disgusting that it had to go through Conan because Conan is kind of a carny motherfucker, and yep. he, he really made that work for him, you know? But even so, like, Eric Bischoff lucked his way into the luchadors because Vince didn't want him. Vince didn't get it. Um, this is one thing I'm always fascinated by. They did the focus groups to get research on what the fans wanted from a yes. wrestling show. I'm oh, I would love. I wish these result these like they like 
kept this data and I could see it because I'm so interested in this. And I don't know if WWE does. Does WWE do this kind of research? They do on occasion. Like there have been a lot of people who have been in crowds who said that they were given various things, but they're not. Here's the thing. I went to school basically to learn how to run focus groups at one point in my life. And there's two types of focus groups you can do. The type where you already know the answer that you want and you're trying to get people to confirm it for you. And the kind where you actually want to know what people think. And WWE does the first kind exclusively. They just want to be told how great their show is. Yeah. It's just like, who's your favorite wrestler? One of these five people. That does not give you any helpful information. It does not. It does not matter that you think that Roman Reigns is better than Seth Rollins if you don't think either one of them is that great. WCW asks questions like, what would make you want to sit during a wrestling show and watch it? When you're watching wrestling, what makes you not change the channel? What kind of stuff makes you put down the remote and say, oh, shit, that's pretty cool? Like, the actual questions that you need. Like, they did it from scratch. Like, And they were asking people who were not wrestling fans. They were asking people like outro surveys as they left like the Disney arena when it was just part of the tour. They're just like, Hey, what was your favorite part? What did you actually like? Was yeah. it anything? So that's one thing I would, I would definitely want to, I would cross tab this by what did loyal, what do loyal wrestling fans like? What do casual fans like? What do non fans like? And what about like, you know, pre, people who used to be fans and have stopped watching and compare that data and just see how does it look different? And then you, I mean, you could break it down by every cross tab. Man versus woman. What are the splits there? By race, by age, like income level. There's so much you can do with this. There is so much room for sociology and professional wrestling, and it has been so underutilized, mostly because wrestling doesn't let anybody in. They don't want anybody to know this stuff. They don't want to ask these questions, and they've been very complacent. WWE especially. One of the smartest things that AEW could possibly do would be to open themselves up to these questions, to ask, what is it going to take to get those casual fans back? What is it going to take to get people who watched in the 90s to be kind of curious about wrestling again? What do they miss? What what sparks them when they see wrestling on SportsCenter? When they look up there, are they like, oh, shit, that Brock Lesnar super cool? Or is it just like, ah, this all looks stupid these days? What is, What do they think? You need to know. So the biggest thing they learned, according to Bischoff, was people liked unpredictability. They liked the idea that they didn't know what was going to happen. They wanted surprises. And this will become kind of the hallmark. They will pull a huge surprise on this initial episode of Nitro. And this will become a hallmark of WCW's booking in this era. Surprise debuts, twists and turns. You know, we got to shock people. Obviously, you can overdo that. But I think that does hit on something very fundamental that – the best thing in wrestling is when something happens that you didn't see come in. Exactly. It's almost amazing that they needed a survey in order to find yeah. that out, yeah. but because it seems so simple. But it's it's so key to the experience of watching wrestling on television. It's just feeling like nothing's going to change and everything's the same is the worst. It's that stasis, and we all know what it's like. We're watching it every week now. So the title Nitro, apparently, this is long forgotten, but apparently TNT had like a weekly action movie. It was like, you know, I don't know what night of the week it was, may have been Mondays, but they would be like, on this night, it's Nitro, and they'll show you, they show a different action movie each week. So that was Corporate Synergy. I also think it's a really good title. 
like I was actually thinking, and I was going through this with my wife because I every once in a while I like I'll throw her like a wrestler's nickname or a wrestler's name, just be, get like the point of view of somebody who's not yeah. in this all the time and be like, is this marketable at all? Is this interesting? And I think we came to the conclusion that Monday Nitro is the greatest name for a wrestling TV show ever. Like I can't. That's a good one. It's it's perfect. It's everything that you need. And like I, to have Monday I, Night Nitro just all already in there, that's great. I don't. I don't hate or love Dynamite. It's a little cheesy. Dynamite sucks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, let's just be clear. Dynamite is not good. Wednesday Night Dynamite is some corny shit. That's not inherently bad, I guess, but it's no Nitro. Um, they picked September 4th for the debut date. Um, that was pretty obvious and very smart. Raw was, re-empt- was uh, preempted that night. Uh, for the U.S. Open, so they get you know a clear shot at it. It's also Labor Day, which holidays are hit and miss, but I think Labor Day is a good one for like a Monday night wrestling show because like by Monday night, I feel like people if they went out, if they went like went on vacation somewhere, they're probably back by Monday night because they've got to go back to work. The kids have got to go to school the next day. And it gives you the maximum opportunity to have like mom, dad, kids, whatever, like all sitting in the living room watching together rather than individually, which is what you're after. You want as many eyeballs on this as possible. Um, that summer, Kevin Sullivan replaced Ric Flair as the head booker. I'm kind of surprised Flair booked this long. I'm not sure. I, th- I feel like Sullivan was probably already doing most of the booking, but I, I'm surprised Flair stayed in this position for this long after they signed Hogan. Oh, man. Like, And Flair hated it. Hated yeah. it so much. Yeah. Booking is not for Ric Flair. That no. level of like detail and concentration, that's not, that is not Ric Flair. He also just genuinely hated so much being the guy who had to be the bad guy. Like, Ric Flair wants to please everybody all the time. He's that guy. He's, like, the guy at the party who's, like, trying to charm everybody and wants to be the life of the party. No, he doesn't want to be the guy who has to, like, fire people and stuff. That's not Ric Flair. They ended up settling on the Mall of America for uh, this show. What do you make of that? It's typically derided. I don't hate it, but I don't love it either. I love it so much. It's so different. It's so the idea is to put together like something that looks unlike any other wrestling show that you've ever seen. Just to like so you turn it on, you're like, wow, that's weird. Yeah, that first shot. And I'm sure we're going to get into that. But like as they come like from the ceiling down and it looks like the Roman Coliseum with people hanging off of the balconies and like watching four stories up is cool as fuck. When they do the wider shots, and yeah, you see if there's all the people on the balconies, that looks cool. When it's in tight, it looks like there's, like, 50 people there. Yes, that is true. And, like, there's people, like, wandering in and out in the background. Yeah. It's the Mall of America. It's literally, like, they're in the middle of the food court at the Mall of America. So, like, it does look cheap, and, like, the entranceway looks like an indie entranceway from 2018. And, like, it's not great. But, like, I understand the reasoning. You, It can't just be in the Disney place. This is what TNA never understood, is that you can't you can't have your big shows be in the impact zone or they won't feel like big shows. They have to look different. 
and there's a couple other things. Bischoff didn't want to do the South because he wanted he didn't want to be Southern wrestling anymore. And they're even though their business has improved, they're still not at the point where they're guaranteed to draw good crowds. Like if they do a 10,000 seat arena, they might only draw 3,000 people, and that's going to look terrible on TV. Yeah. So his idea is let's put it in a place where a bunch of assholes will already be. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's they can pay it free. Like people will show up if it's free, right? Yeah. Plus, you know with your whole heart that Hulk Hogan was like sitting with Eric Bischoff in the back one day, and he was like, "Man, where can I put Nitro?" And Hulk Hogan was like, "Well, oh, brother, uh, oh brother, I got this new store opening up called Pasta Mania, brother, and uh, I really think some co-branding could give it a kick in the leg there." <laughs> Yeah. And like as much as people make fun of that, like doing a solid for your top star, your franchise player, not the worst idea. No. And how this is how the world works. If Pasta Mania goes national, that's just more advertising for you. So like why is that's not bad. Yeah. Um, this is totally random. A month before this show, they finally aired the insane uh, Collision in Korea show on pay-per-view. Oh, this was taped back in April, but it aired on pay-per-view. I Maybe we can cover this sometime. I don't know if this show is anywhere on the internet, though, because it's technically a New Japan show. Maybe if we do like a bonus episode sometime, we can just talk about some of the craziest shows that you can't actually find oh. copies of. And like this is... Dude, 93, like 117,000 people in attendance to watch Inoki Russell Flair. Like, it's fucking crazy. Bischoff did a podcast episode on it, and it was really, really good. It was just a fascinating story. I mean, it was probably dumb that they did this. It's very reminiscent. It's reminiscent of WWE's Saudi Arabia shows, except without the blood money, because I don't know that they really made any money off this beyond it just helped their relationship with New Japan. Yeah, that's the ironic thing. It was actually New Japan that was doing the WWE Saudi Arabia thing because it was not cool at the time for any Japanese company to be doing this. It was Inoki's political career, right? Inoki wanted to be prime minister of Japan. Yes, he did. And he thought he had a genuine shot at it, which is a topic for a totally different time. I mean, he was in the, um, what do they call it, the, the, the diet? Yes. In Japan, he was, I believe, a reasonably. Didn't he like get some hot? Didn't he like negotiate with Saddam Hussein and get some hostages freed? There. Okay, let's not open this bag. <laughs> fucking worms right now. Yeah. We're already already gonna run long on this one. Um, they had a, they held a press conference August fourteenth to officially announce Nitro's debut. It was in New York City at the Harley Davidson Cafe. That's pretty clearly a shot across the bow to the WWF. Uh, this is also when they announced that Steve McMichael would be part of the broadcast team. They had Hogan, Sting, and Savage at the press conference. Seems like kind of a snub for Ric Flair to not have him there. Uh, it's an incredible snub, and like they just keep snubbing Ric Flair all through this. And I think. This is part of Bischoff just not wanting to be seen as being Southern. Like, I think he wanted to leave behind the old idea of what WCW was. But Flair's the guy who brought you here. And, like, this is going to be the start of the disconnect between the old WCW and the new WCW. And it never really stops. Like, the disconnect between Flair and Bischoff starts here and gets bad by the end. Yeah. All right, guys, I'm going to give you, like, a two-minute warning here. 
Um, we're going to do a watch along and do commentary on this show. So, you know, queue up your WWE network, you know, go to the first Nitro, get it ready to go because we're going to get started in a couple minutes here. Okay. Oh, um, so I'm so nervous to do a watch along. We've never done one before. Something infamous that happened right before this was the backstage fight between Vader and Paul Orndorff. Um, this is where Orndorff like kicks Vader's ass and literally like stomps him into the ground while wearing flip-flops. He's wearing flip-flops. Yeah. This is a man who's disabled. One of his arms barely works. Paul Orndorff's a fucking badass though. Whoops. Vader's Yeah. I mean, the story I've heard is just like Vader was being a dick backstage. He was complaining he had to do promos. And Orndorff is just like, had enough. And it's like, well, you shut the fuck up already. And just like, they get into it. Vader, I think, allegedly throws the first punch and Orndorff just takes him apart. Just the idea of a man beating the ass of a man easily 100 pounds heavier than him while wearing flip flops is just such a genius mental image i'm amazed it's never been in a movie um so vader was on the vader was one going to be part of this show going to be heavily featured the reports were he was going to shoot an angle with hogan and he might even win the title on the second episode so they would might want to do a big title change on tv instead he gets fired God, what a missed opportunity for Vader, right? Yeah. Like, to be, like, the monster going into the beginning of Nitro. Because they don't really have that guy. Like, Nitro does not... Whatever we may say about this episode, and it definitely has a lot of good points to it, Nitro doesn't get good for, like, a long time after this. This show is not, like, an instant success in terms of quality. It's... There's still not that much going on in this company. I mean, it's way better than Raw. Raw yes. sucks at this point. Raw is trash. Raw's trash until arguably 97. Um, so after everything, this show was a smashing success. They draw a 2.9 rating. And then even more impressively, the next week on September 11th, Nitro beats Raw head-to-head in the ratings, doing a 2.5 against Raw's 2.2. I don't think anybody ever expected them. A lot, Most people I don't think expected they would ever beat Raw, much less do it right away. Like, there's this clip online, you can find it on YouTube, of Paul Heyman, like, being asked. I don't know what he's at. He must be at, like, a fan convention or something. They ask him about like how somebody asked him how he thinks WCW is going to do against WWF. And he just laughingly says like, Oh, WCW is going to be out of business in six weeks. And like, then in the comments, people are like, Oh, Paul sure had it right. I'm like, yeah, WCW went out of business six years later after they kicked the WWF's ass for years. Like Heyman got this one wrong. I just need you guys to understand. This isn't like if AEW were to like beat raw. Now, this is weirder than that because now W. AEW is so hot right now that it would actually be make more sense for them to beat Raw in the ratings than it did for Nitro to do it here. I think it's it, it more like no if TNA had beaten Raw in the ratings yeah. when they went to Monday nights, it's which fucking, they did not. It's bizarre. <laughs> like, there's no way you could have possibly imagined that this was going to happen. But, like, people just clearly chose Nitro over Raw. Partially because Raw really sucked. Yeah, sucked ass. So much ass. All right. 
We ready to do the watch along? Let's go! All right, guys, you got it queued up? All right, we are going to start in five, four, three, two, one, go! All right, so we open up with this iconic Nitro opening, which I absolutely love. Um, images of the wrestlers on the buildings, the flames run through. Hey, Vader! Look, oh. it's Vader! He doesn't work here anymore. Oh, he doesn't. Uh, pretty sure they swapped him out of the credits the week after this. But yeah, I think this is a great opening. I'm sure they filmed this like um, in the back lot at Disney. And you are looking live at beautiful downtown Minneapolis, Minnesota, and the Mall of America. Okay, this shot. This is the one I was talking about. Yes. Literally on the ceiling of the Mall of America. Holy shit, this looks great. And we're looking down. At, oh, my God. And now, Holy shit. Mongo McMichael wearing his Navajo casino owner's leather jacket. Looks like Steven Seagal in that movie where he pretended to be Native American. He looks like Steven Seagal wearing your grandma's sunglasses, and he's standing next to insurance salesman Eric Bischoff. Bischoff with his serial killer button buttoned up. God, he has a shirt like that. And Bobby Heenan walks into the frame and saves us all. What do you think of this commentary, Tim? Well, it contains Steve Mongo McMichael, so it is, in fact, the worst commentary team in the history of professional wrestling, including Art Donovan. Mongo is real bad. Um, Bischoff, I think, did a good job. Like, I think Bischoff... It's What do you think of doing Bischoff instead of Shivani? I feel like this was Bischoff just being like, we're all in on this, I want the ball for the big game. Like, he wants to be the guy doing the calls. I think he did a good job. Yeah, I don't hate it. I think he's basically his closest corollary is Vince in terms yeah. of announcing quality. Like there it's about the same. And for the same reason. Like they want he wanted to be able to be the one who like threw to stuff. He knew what he wanted to do and I'm sure and this is reflected many times that he just didn't really trust Tony Schiavone to carry out his vision. Josh and Thunderlager. Okay, this is an interesting one. Uh, to open with Liger versus Pillman. Obviously, these guys are going to put on a hell of an athletic match. But should you open with Hogan? Should you open with Sting and Flair, your two huge stars? I get the logic of opening with Action and Liger. Hard to change the channel when this guy's coming out, right? Well, I think that's the fascinating thing, is that the first thing that they put on screen is something completely unlike anyone has ever seen in American wrestling before. Justin Liger has no corollary to anything you've ever seen on a television screen in American professional wrestling. Yeah. These guys had an incredible match at one of the first Super Brawls, uh, if you've never seen that. Like, a five-star match in the opening match. A match years ahead of its time. Let's also remember, this is this year, 2019, is the year that Justin Liger retires. This yeah. is his final year in the business, this year. So we're going back, what, like, fuck, almost 30 fucking years here? Yeah. Oof, and Brian Pillman, still more of the flying Brian. He's not, you know, ticking time bomb loose cannon Brian Pillman yet. Uh, I don't believe has joined the Horsemen quite yet. That'll come soon. Is flying Brian the worst nickname that anyone's ever been given lame as fuck 
Now, see, okay, here's the image that we're looking at right now, too, is it's like these guys in the ring and there's all these like weird shots of like these huge escalators and uh, like crisscrossing everything. Like if you've never been to the Mall of America, it's gigantic. It's like a city that just lives on its own. And it's like several stories tall. So we're looking at it like maybe like 300 people. It's not that many. Oh, oh, moonsault, they almost landed right on his head. There's got to be so many nerves for Liger here, right? Like he's. He's never been in front of a crowd like this before. It's bizarre. Yeah. Um, and he, Liger's not just fighting for himself here, honestly. Like, the New Japan WCW agreement is very tenuous and always was. And so he's representing it here. And, like, there have been a lot of serious failures that we've covered. When Shono came over, it was a disaster. When they put the title on Fujinami, it was a disaster. Like, Liger's trying to, like, fix what was wrong. <laughs> So I'll mention that um, opposite this on uh, Monday Night Football on this night, the Dallas Cowboys blew out the New York Giants uh, 35 to zero in the season opener for both teams. Another Ooh. bit of good, fl- ooh, nice, weird looking Hurricane Rana there by Pillman. Like Pillman did a Hurricane Rana, and Liger tried to turn the opposite direction, and I've never seen that before. Yeah. Um. But another bit of good fortune that the football game turns out to be a blowout. Yeah, so people are, like, switching channels. And it can't be overstated the importance of switching channels at this point. It's like that's how you got a lot of viewers onto different stuff. Is that if, like, a football game was boring, people start switching around to see what else was on. Uh, Crowd at this point has begun to chant USA. Yay. I mean, they're both both baby faces. Pillman isn't a heel yet. But it's not like you'd necessarily know that Liger was a baby face. Like, if you saw him, like, all four. He looks, he looks kind of satanic, to be honest. He looks kind of fucking awesome, is what he looks. Like a really badass Power Ranger. Oh, rock him! Rock him! Get him in that surfboard! Liger using one of the many, like, dozens of moves that he invented that everyone uses these days. Yeah. Oh, he's gonna br- is he going to bring it all the way? Ah, oh, I love this. Rocking it oh. back and forth while he's up there. That's cool. And then the transitions. Man, I do love me some Jushin Liger. Got to see him wrestle uh, live when I was at the first NXT uh, Brooklyn takeover. Remember when that happened? How weird of a blip is it in history that New Japan just let Liger go to America and wrestle for WWE one night just because he wanted to? Like, that's... Yeah. Imagine the kind of stroke you have in your company that's just like, hey, I want to go wrestle for your competition just because I've always wanted to. Another botch is they kind of screw up the uh, backdrop to the floor there. Liger comes off the the apron with a somersault sent on. Both men are down. This is is that car crash style you're looking for from these guys. You know, go out there, you're going to work five or six minutes, and I just want balls-to-the-wall action. It must be said that by their standard and by the standards that we expect today, this match sucks. Like, it's just botchy all the way around. But at the time, like, nobody did somersaults to the floor. No, I mean, this is this is what will launch the cruiserweight division in WCW. Um, they won't get a cruiserweight title until, I believe, the coming spring. But they pr- they're featuring cruiserweight matches just about every week after this with... Benoit, Guerrero, Pillman, um, other, you know, Sabu, Jerry Lynn, the other luchadors. It's funny that right here on the first show, they're already establishing the template that they'll go with from here on. Cruiserweight match to start. Hogan in the main event. 
weird surprise swerve. Yeah, you know, hits all those beats. Uh, Pillman crotched on the top. What what's Liger got here? What are we what are we doing? It's a superplex. It's a superplex. Ah! Uh, can can you get him over? Yes. The cover. One, two. He got it. He got it. No, no he didn't. I thought that was three. What a maneuver. <laughs> now, I promised myself that I wouldn't spend this whole watch along doing Vince. Oh, why the hell not? Liger, back to the top rope. Oh, Pillman with a beautiful drop kick. Right on the button. The man That's got to be it. No! The man in the front row in the vertical horizontal striped shirt jumped to his feet, ecstatic at that drop kick. Brian Pillman sporting some interesting tassels that seem yeah. loosely connected to his tights. That seems dangerous. <laughs> oh. Liger. Liger. Oh, the powerbomb just barely got him over. Hell yeah. Kick out. Liger visibly frustrated. How is he visibly frustrated? You can't see his face. It's body language, Steve. It's all about body language. Uh, setting him up. What's he got here? Um, oh, is it? Is it? The Frankensteiner! That's gimmick infringement. Oh, he kicked out again. Mulleted Nick Matt Patrick with his signature laying on his side like a beach turtle look as he counts That's the three. Slow, slow count. I've never seen anybody do it the way he does it, where he just lays on his side with his legs in the air, and just like, a one-a, a two-a. I don't know. He had bad knees. I think knee injuries ended his wrestling career. I don't know if that's it. Uh, Pillman with the tornado. Oh! That's a beautiful tornado, DDT. Another kick out. More near falls than you really expect from a match in 1995 here. This match is actually already longer than I expected. At this point, I should probably mention that I've never seen this show before ever. Wait, really? One, two, three, caught him with the roll-up, yeah! Flying Brian with the big win. Yes, so I've, I have a New Japan guy doing a clean job in the middle of the ring. Like I said, he's trying to mend fences here. Like, Jushin Liger is not quite the name in 1995 that he would later go on to be. So he's he's really trying to help relations here and put people over and they raise each other's hands in the middle of the ring all the people who are chanting usa feel like assholes now yeah yeah i've never seen this show before ever like i've i've seen clips from it obviously i've seen like luger coming out at the end like i know about it but i've never seen it from start to finish before i held off just for this so i could call it in the moment yeah good opening match here um you know just Car crash, tons of action, high-flying, fast-paced. Look at that tight ass on Brian Pillman. That is a nice ass. Yeah, it is. You're not going to get that kind of coverage from any other team. Whew. Oh. Retaped promo. I don't feel like they ever used like this again, like this kind of bumper as they're going out to commercial, but I like it. I like the idea of just being like, oh, you're going to see Sting next, and he's pissed off. Though having the flames under him while he's talking just kind of looks like he's on the barbecue, and it's kind of distracting. God, this just looks so great. 
it's lit so incredibly in the neon from all the stores in the background. Like I've never seen anything like this before. Yeah, they I mean they would do more. So they did, you know, they did the Panama beat, you know, they do the spring break one. I always loved the spring break nitros. Yeah. Um oh, oh Paul Comedia. Yeah. Can you do can you do this promo, brother? Well, let me tell you something. What I got pasta. We got linguine. We got lasagna. We got everything you need down here at the Pasta Mania, dude. Oh. <laughs> Man, I could really go for some Pasta Mania, honestly. Honestly, yeah. Some linguine sounds pretty good right about now. I, he's, this is such a preposterous thing. Imagine any wrestler now being so popular they they would try to launch a chain of fast food restaurants in their name. Seth Rollins burn it down chicken shock. Okay, first of all, uh patented, you guys can't take that. TM TM, that's us. <sighs> Just fucking Jimmy Hart in the back with the title belt and an American flag. No. Also, I, I don't, like, this isn't something Hogan sunk money into. Like, I'm pretty sure somebody just paid him to, like, like, Hogan made money from this. He got paid to license his name for this restaurant. Hulk Hogan has never spent a dime of his own money in his life except on his divorce, which unfortunately cost him all of it. Um, yeah. But, like, yeah, like, if you weren't paying Hulk, he wasn't showing up. An absurdly long time. What have we got there on the menu? Uh, we got, a. Uh... They got like names, but sadly I didn't write them down. Oh man! Like, do you think it was Pasta Mania because there was already a pasta restaurant and they just slapped his name on it, or do you think they were like trying to come up with the concept and they were like put something new there? But yeah, I mean, I would imagine it was you know Pasta Hulk Hogan's Pasta Mania running wild. All right, what what do we got now? United States Championship match: Ric Flair versus Sting. Oh my God, that's such a great match! Look at Ric Flair. Look, Rick, looking like the man. He really does. Like if this, he almost see he does. He's the only wrestler who all night isn't gonna seem out of place in any setting. Like you put Ric Flair in a mall, he owns it. You put Ric Flair in a ring, he owns it. You put Ric Flair in a bar, he owns it. Doesn't matter what the venue is, he owns it. He looks great with his shorter hair here. I think that's a great for him. Like, he's still not old Ric Flair yet. He's getting up there, but he still looks great. Yeah, he's got to be into his 40s by this point. Probably late 40s, honestly. And the man called Sting. Wearing one of the ugliest outfits that you will ever see on a human being in your life. Good Lord, that jacket. He is shining like a million spotlights are on him, and all they're illuminating is stupid. <laughs> he will update his look kind of in the – he'll stop bleaching his hair and go to, you know, dark hair. I thought that thought that was a good move for him. Yeah, like this look is so – and like just the it's solid chunk dude. of purple. Yeah, the like, neon pink tights. This is still a very 80s look. Like, neither he nor Flair have really updated their look in about 10 years, and you can tell. This is, uh, wait, who's that? What? What's that? Somebody's coming out. What? Is that? What? What? He doesn't work here. What's he doing? Luger. What? what is he doing here? Get the camera off of him. 
Okay, can't overstate how much they pulled one over on Vince here. Um, Lex Luger literally worked the WWF house shows the week, like this weekend. Like he may have wrestled the day before this, like in Nova Scotia, and they flew him to Minneapolis. The fascinating thing to me is that like Lex Luger meant so little to Vince McMahon and WWF. Like he had so little value there by the end. He's fucking teaming with the British Bulldog, like, who the hell cares? But WCW, Lex Luger means something in this company, especially to Sting and Ric Flair. Like, Lex Luger was the man who was tapped to replace Ric Flair. Lex Luger was the man who was standing in Sting's way while at the same time being his best friend. Lex Luger has a backstory going back a decade with both of these men. To have him walk out at the middle of their match is such smart booking. I wish I knew who was responsible for it. So Luger's WWF contract had expired. He was just kind of working, you know, on a handshake, being paid per night. It was miserable in the WWF. It was clear they had no plans for him at all. Um, so he calls his buddy Sting and asks him, like, hey, can I get some work in WCW? Any interest? Bischoff had really no interest in Lex Luger. So he sent him what he considered an insultingly low offer. And much to his surprise, Luger accepted it. How low do you think that offer was? It had to have been like barely six digits. Two fifty, maybe. I don't know. Even that seems like too much. Like, but Sting's probably making Sting and Flair probably five hundred some at this point. Yeah, I would imagine that he offered Luger like one fifty, and it's yeah. like no way Luger's taking that shit. Like, and then Luger does fifty after like taxes and road expenses. Yeah. Yeah, not all that much money, to be honest. It's kind of like the classic, like, sports prove-yourself contract. Like, Luger knows if he gets over, he's worth a million. Like, he's not worried about that. I mean, it's paid off in spades for both guys. I mean, Luger ends up making a ton of money, and he makes a ton of money for WCW. Ends up having really the best run of his career here in WCW. Oh, absolutely. And, like, thank God for Sting that it happens, because without Luger, there's no Crow. Um, so he just, yeah, he screwed over Vince in the WWF, didn't give them notice. You know, they found out that he had jumped ship when they were watching this show and saw him come out on camera. That's so fantastic to me. Also, who do you think dressed Lex Luger for this? This is just something that I'm fascinated by. Uh, Do you think he had a giant puffy pirate blouse that he was just dying to wear on a formal occasion? And that this was like... (laughs) I don't know, homage to Seinfeld. Have they done the puffy shirt episode yet? I don't know. Maybe this is the inspiration for the puffy shirt. Because he is wearing, he comes out looking like Fabio from head to toe. Yeah. Uh, Sting is dominating in the ring, just throwing Luger or Flair around. Um, I can't help but note as we watch this how 80s it all looks. Like, the setting is really the only thing that's different. Because we've seen this match 700 times. Yeah. They both look the same. The outfits are the same. Like, they don't change. And if I'm, like, Bischoff watching in the back, like, I I get why he moves away from Flair. Because this is so, it's so done, like, all of this that we're watching right now. Like, I've seen them do all of these things 500 times. I mean, Flair, it's just, I don't, is there, it's hard to freshen up Ric Flair. Like, what could you, what can you do with them? 
Well, you know, I'll say one thing they were doing with him, which we'll see in a bit, is uh, he's feuding with Arn Anderson right now, which was something very different and very fresh. Yes, that is very that, fresh. Yeah. Arn, um, you know, is just tired of carrying Flair's water. Arn has said that, you know, his job as the enforcer was to keep the money coming in. And the way to keep that money coming in was to have Ric Flair be the world's champion. And he was going to ride Ric Flair for as long as he could go. But he didn't think Flair quite had it in the tank anymore. And Arn wants to step out of Flair's shadow and prove that now he's the man and he's going to be the world's champion. That's an awesome story. And like, it's been an said, awesome match at Fall Brawl a couple weeks after this. I think Kevin Sullivan said in a shoot interview that like it was always his plan to put the world title on Arn Anderson until Hogan came. There. Yeah, Hogan came. And like that changes everything, obviously. Arn has got to be one of the best wrestlers to never be world champion. He's definitely on the list. I mean, yeah. and he'll always be underrated because of that. I really wonder, like, that's why I'm looking forward to his new podcast. Like, I'd really love to hear his thoughts on the fact that he never became world champion. He's probably at peace with it, honestly. Yeah, he had an incredible career. I Anybody who knows anything about wrestling knows Arn Anderson was fantastic. Sting has body slammed Ric Flair. There's the man. Look how studly he looks. Arn Anderson coming down in his warm-up and his Zumba's. See, he looks like he's from this decade, though. Unlike those two. He looks like a really angry football coach. Yeah. He just had that. He just looked like he could mess you up. Like, yeah, he had a belly, but you wouldn't pick a fight with that guy. Do you think if he had ever had a full head of hair that he would have made it to the main event faster? Do wonder about that, don't you? He had the most pronounced bald spot in the history of the business. Sting firing up, clotheslines. Flair begging off into the corner. What's coming? Oh, the Flair flip. And oh, the big clothesline. Flair's leveled. I think Sting could actually be asleep right now. That's how often they've done this. But as Kevin, Kevin Sullivan would say, this was his safety blanket. Whenever he didn't know what to do, he'd book Flair and Sting because he knew it would draw a raid in. And it, I mean, this is... Even though I've seen this so many times, even though this match is basically just Sting body slamming Ric Flair 45 times in a row, it's still fun to watch. Oh, I love this. Yeah, this is great stuff. Sting setting Flair up. Oh, Flair, the counter. The hell is here? Nothing. Flair does not have a move to do from here. If this is SmackDown versus Raw, his moveset is empty. Yeah. And he just jumps down from the top rope without doing anything. The only time in his career he didn't go for the top rope move and get thrown off. Oops, snapmare to the ground. That's the wrestling. How strange is that? Oh, I love guys bridging out. Yeah. Sting looking for that backslide. Could have gone with Flair struggling a little more there. I think you get a big pop when you get him down if there's more of a struggle. Now Sting setting Flair up on the top rope. Superplex? Yeah, yep. I think Flair was out of position for it before, so they had to kind of reconfigure it. Yeah. That was all just kind of called in the spot. And up he goes! Uh, Flair taking the bump kind of on his side as always. Protecting that back, he broke in the plane crash back in the 70s. 
How incredible is it that he broke his back and just learned how to bump weirdly on his side and that there were no long-term repercussions for bumping like that? I mean, imagine a world, ah, the chop block. Imagine a world where Ric Flair never becomes world champion. It easily, easily, easily could have happened. Like it, the guy could have had his career ended. Somebody had their career ended in that plane crash. Can't remember who it was. I can't remember either. Figure four, Sting, firing up. Can he turn him? Can he turn him? Yeah, Flair's got the ropes. Flair's got the ropes. They used him to turn him back, but Nick Patrick caught him. That's Pee Wee Anderson, not Nick Patrick. Yeah, he's got the mustache. That's how you can tell. Refusing to break. Shooter. Arn Anderson. And we've got a disqualification. Arn Anderson wearing some Air Jordans like the slick motherfucker he is. Are we going to do it? Oh, we're going to do it. Here we go. Okay, wait a minute. Oh, Flair with the first punch, but Arn's having none of it, and he's beating his ass. Beating that ass. Oh, they're firing a fighting on the outside. Good brawl here. There and was a moment there where they were both standing in the ring where I was like, "There's, they're just going to turn around and beat up Sting. I've seen this before. Uh, that happens. That, that, that happens at Halloween Havoc. Yeah, this happens every fucking time to Sting. He's just like, oh, man, let me help St- Ric Flair's greatest enemy. Oh, wait, it's me again. <sighs> Sting is the stupidest baby face in wrestling history. Yeah. And there's... Oh, wait. What is he doing here? Scott Norton, the world's greatest arm wrestling champion. Uh, quite the vest he's got on there. He's uh, complaining to Bischoff that he's not booked on this show. And uh, McMichael is going to stand up for himself. This is fun. This is a good I little w- segment. Yeah, IWGP champion Scott Norton. Oh, Macho yeah. Man! He is having none of this. You don't insult my friend Steve McMichael like that. No way. Eric Bischoff is the man who pays the macho man's bills. Oh, yeah. I've already got this yellow wrist tape on in the back. I might as well get in a match now. Yeah. Do it, brother. Right now! I'm going to say we can do it right here, right now. Norton is going to beg off and say... Let's do it next week. I do appreciate, you know, as little of a thing as this is to set up the match for the next Nitro. You know, I dig that. I like promoting next week's matches in advance. This is also part of the template that they're going to create for Nitro is just to have little things that don't seem scripted. Like Scott Norton just wandering out and being like, hey, what the fuck? Why am I not on the show? It's it's like not that important to the show and it's only for a couple of minutes. But it really makes it feel like, oh, hey, that's something different. That's that's not just on the run sheet. You know? the, the homicidal, suicidal, genocidal Sabu is coming to WCW for like Imagine two weeks. Imagine if they had kept him. Honestly. And, yeah, we did that Halloween Havoc. That match was, I mean, Sabu and WCW is just one of those things that like doesn't fit, doesn't seem right. But I think it was great. Like there's always room for a weirdo, right? Yeah. But I feel like if they had kept him, he would have gotten so goddamn over. Yeah, he's breaking tables and launching himself off chairs. Nobody's doing that shit back then. Here's the thing. I just need 
to live in a reality, the weird alternate reality where Sabu wrestles Hulk Hogan for any reason in any way. And Hogan's like, I'm not taking those bumps. What the fuck? Here in the middle of the ring, we've got Mean Gene Okerlund. He is going to announce the winner of the Harley Davidson sweepstakes. This is one of those weird things that Eric Bischoff never grew out of. Like, Eric Bischoff was very smart in a lot of ways. I can at Coleman, Alabama. Congratulations. He's immortalized forever. Keep listening, Mike. Like, imagine if Mike Hill is one of our listeners. See you in the crown room. But, like, Eric Bischoff's persistent belief that we are all obsessed with Harley Davidson motorcycles like he is. Um, now Bischoff is going to run down the matches for <laughs> got Johnny B. Bad versus Dick Slater, uh, Sting and Randy Savage versus the Blue Bloods, um, an update on Fall Brawl, all that and more, 6.05 Saturday night Eastern time on TBS. Fall Brawl has such a great design to it. Yeah. Love the tank and like the camo. Good stuff. Uh, we've got uh, the some kind of mascot. I don't know what the fuck this is. Oh man, what is that? A dog? Like, is that is that a Mall of America thing? No idea. Also, who is this like George? Who is this Briscoe looking dude who's working security? Uh, that's Doug Dillinger. Oh my God, it's it's it's. What the hell is he doing here? This is uh, Mike Rotunda. Formerly IRS in the WWF, now uh, Michael Wall Street, but later v- renamed VK Wall Street. With the dollar sign and gold glitter on his the coat pocket that could not more be saying, hey, I'm playing Dead DiBiase here. Yeah, uh, he's going to bag on the WWF new generation, calling them the few generation. And he says that the IRS is going to be keeping a very close eye on him. Like, this is such a half-cocked idea. The idea of, like, you get him, and you're like, well, we don't have shit for him to do. Let's just have him, like, do Ted DiBiase's gimmick and talk a bunch of shit about WWF. That's not a gimmick. That's not a good idea. But I get where they were going. But just, like, to have those, like, quick promos, like, in and out, like, 30 seconds, bam. That's smart TV. Yeah. Big Bubba Rogers. Christ. This is a bad gimmick. First of all, Big Bubba is such a stupid ass name. That's like, there's nothing more southern than calling someone Big Bubba. Um, looking like uh, one of the Blues Brothers, but he lost the glasses and the hat. I like that they had those lights on the ceiling, like That's just cool. like the projectors. Yeah. 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 I mean, a well-produced show on the whole. And all the bright lights and mirrors are distracting from the fact that there's only 200 people here. It's American made. Are we already to the main event? Jeez. Yeah. A brisk hour of TV, you know, 45 minutes without commercials. Jimmy Hart out here looking like a giant American flag has been painted over his body. I can't believe they thought having Jimmy Hart manage Hulk Hogan was a good idea. Like, well, yeah, Hogan needed somebody to carry his weed. That's the thing, is that it's not that they thought it was a good idea. It was that Hulk was like, well, brother, uh, I'd really feel more comfortable if I had Jimmy carrying the weed. 
<laughs> Can we get Brood Eye? If you won't give me Brood Eye, I've really got to have Jimmy. <laughs> this is objectively a really terrible look in 1995, is it not? Just like the oh. bandana, the little yellow tights, and. Yeah, he should have gone to the pants by this point. And it's not that Hulk has a bad physique here, because that's not what it is. It's just. It, to be. it just needs an update. And yeah. oh, look at the ball. Oh, no. And speaking of bad looks, Bobo with his shirt undone, looking like your fat, sweaty uncle at a wedding reception. Literally, he's wearing like pants and suspenders and an unbuttoned shirt. And he's, oh, he looks horrible. And his like <sighs> terrible flat top haircut. Like, how are you trying to avoid the South, but you literally put him on this show? personification of the American South, like your big fat uncle trying to groove to September on the dance floor at a wedding reception. And here's Hulk rocking the skullet as bad as he ever did. <laughs> He's got like three hairs on the top of his head. I once saw, like, I, don't, I listened to a podcast called How Did This Get Made, which obviously is a much more famous podcast than ours, so I don't even need to pretend like you guys don't know what it is. And they once referred to one of his movies that Hulk's hair looked like fine doll's hair. And I've never <laughs> been able to not think about that ever since. Now I'm pretty sure it's just like straw taped to the inside of his bandana. Oh, he's straight got a weave now. Like, there's no question about it. But like, here, he's literally bald. He just has like a tiny little bit of incredibly thin, fine hair, like taped to the back of his head. It's a horrible look. One of the worst I've ever seen. Crowd is hot for this. You do have some thumbs down for Hogan, though. Not everybody's feeling the Hulkster. Like, this audience was never really one that loved Hulk. Like this. No, it was hit and miss. I mean, it was better in the North, I think. Um, better in WWF towns. But, yeah, it was not good. There were, there were lots of boos. Well, it's one of those things where, like, if you're the, if you're the promotion on top, and you get like like when WWF gets Flair, it's not like boo, fuck you, Flair, you're the competition. But if you're the one who's always been in second, like you get like does that way more like culty feel, like fuck you, yeah. fuck Hogan, holding us down, we're the better promotion, blah blah blah. It's like like TNA actually, their audience had a lot of the same reaction to Hogan, and like they weren't even in direct competition with him. But it was just like screw you, we don't need that guy. Hulkster with the right hands in the corner. What do you think of putting this match on here? It sucks. It's the you worst needed, possible match. You needed a Hogan match. I think you wanted to put somebody he was comfortable working with, which Boss Man is. Um, well, that's the thing. Is that like you know, Vader would have been a more appealing opponent, but Vader got his ass kicked and then got his ass fired. One of the things that makes Hollywood Hogan feel like such a breath of fresh air is for the first time in years, you feel like you're seeing him against different people or just like interacting with different people. Because like for 10 years here, it feels like Hogan's just always in the ring with the same five dudes. And it sucks. And if he's not, he's still having the same match he'd have against Bubba. Oh, uh, big boot did not connect. A big boot misses. I'll do it again. Uh, that one didn't really connect either, if we're being honest. Hogan kicks Big Bubba in the head. Bubba just stands there until Hogan like, taps his chest. This is 
This is vile. This is the shits, ladies and gentlemen. This. <laughs> How fucking bad is this match? This is an assault on the senses. But this is like, just look at how many people are on this escalator right now. Like, just a stream of hundreds of people on this escalator. It literally just, it doesn't stop. Like, there's just, there's never not a night at this point, nearly nine o'clock. Yeah. Boss man with the straddle goes for the Baron Corbin special. What do you think of Baron Corbin being the king of the ring? I feel filled with rage and sickness. Hulk Hogan will not let you assault his weed carrier, Jimmy Hart, goddammit. He just said the words, knocked his face right out of his mouth. Covers Bossman with it like it's a hockey jersey, and now he's going to rain the ten punches down on him. While Jimmy Hart does heel distractions from the ref. The ref is all up in Hogan's face. All right. This this, uh, premise cannot sustain itself for this long. Hulk Hogan clotheslines Bubba, and Bubba just decides to keep selling the clothesline as if he's continued being clotheslined. Very unique sell there. How is this match still going on? Can we please get the inevitable run in? Please. Hogan, one elbow, two elbows. Pose. Heelish kick to the face. Very heelish. Have you ever noticed how Hulk Hogan's whole moveset is incredibly heelish? Yeah, the biting, the scratching, like... Yeah, <laughs> never really wrestled the babyface style. Yeah, when he becomes Hollywood Hogan, he doesn't actually change his moveset at all. Bunch of boring-ass knees in the corner by Bubba. The crowd is literally looking in other directions now. Like, they're like, oh, I wonder if Pottomania is still open. It's been going on forever. There's an old dude in, like, the third row trying to get back to a seat that I'm watching more intently than I am this match. They cut away because they didn't want to show. Okay, he's going to take a piss. He's out of here. He literally tries to step over, like, four rows worth of people. Boss man misses the charge. This is Hogan's chance. Can he fire up? Whoa, booyakasha! Booyakasha! Bunch. Oh, the kind of a boss man slam. Mossman says that's it because he has no understanding of what matches are like. First wrestling match before. Oh, that doll hair is flapping in the wind. You can't hurt him. You're only making him stronger when you punch him. Oh no, Hogan, who's having this horrible match with you? Is it you? (laughs) (laughs) Russia. The big boot! Here comes the leg! Drop. are destroyed! Two, three! He got him! The greatest professional athlete in the world today! Hulk Hogan! Hulk's, you know what? Let me give Hulk Hogan some credit. Because Hulk Hogan always seems so genuinely happy to be there. 
and to be interacting with the crowd, even though I'm sure that he's not, and he hates everyone that he's seeing right now. He's going to go see his side piece right now. Yeah, all he's thinking about is, ooh, I can't wait to get some linguine and go fuck Bubba's wife. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, no! Kamala was in WCW? I'm sorry, what is happening right now? Bri, Kevin Sullivan, uh, the Earthquake, uh, who, are, who the fuck? That Papa Shango? Who are these jabronis? No, that's Ming. Who the fuck are these jabronis? And Max Luger, Max Luger, and they're, oh, oh, no, no. Are they going to do it? What, what are you doing here, brother? You don't work here, Luger. I left you back in that other place. God, Lex Luger got a real nice ass on him, too, to be honest. Yeah, what a, just a tight, high ass on Lex Luger. Nice, nice dad jeans. Real sad, dumpy ass on Sting, unfortunately. <laughs> Lex Luger uh, from behind looking like a movie star. Yeah. Oh, he looks so much better than Hogan. Like, yeah, when they when they wrestle next week, as soon as they're in the ring together, it's like, yeah, Luger should really be the champ. Like, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> trillion billion bucks savage trying to get in between and being like hey brother uh i need to make money wrestling both of you so don't hurt yourselves all right <laughs> yeah the macho man sees those dollar signs and we are gonna go to commercial try to restore some order here this is objectively a really great idea the dungeon of doom run in so they're the only heels in the company so i guess you have to do that Jabronis. The moment Kevin Sullivan hits the ring and he's a foot and a half shorter than Hulk Hogan, he's he's buried deader than dead. He's a foot and, and as wide as he is tall. And just like the the collection of jabronis that they have there. But like the bat the Luger and Hogan backing into each other and facing off, that's smart, man. That's a good idea. You can't the comeback to Warrior and Hogan in the Royal Rumble. I can't question it. Like the booking here is good. Putting that match on for 10 minutes almost killed the entire show. That would have been better. Would have been that maybe would have been Vader. I don't know. Like I said, there's no heels in this company for Hogan to wrestle. So like it doesn't. We got Mean Gene in here. He wants to know what the hell's going on. Luger, what are you doing here? I came here to the WCW because then I take on the best in the world. They say this is where the big boys play. I'm not here. I'm here to play with the big boys. I didn't mean to say that that way. Check the adjective. Play. That sounded a lot gayer than I wanted it to. (laughs) The t-shirts are too tight. I'm getting really sweaty in this big, gigantic shirt. <clears throat> Put it on under these lights, isn't it, Hogan? So, yeah, Luger is, he says he's here to beat Hogan. He's going to prove he's the top man in the industry. He challenges Hogan to fight him anytime he wants to. Hogan says Luger can have his title shot on Nitro next week. They're going to shake hands and seal this deal. That is a really big deal match for the second week of this show. That could be your Starcade main event. Yeah, they're just going balls to the wall. And I, I love the involvement of Savage and Sting in the background here because it really makes it seem like it's a promotion-spanning deal. Yeah. Like, it matters. And they're, like, unconsciously backing up the other two. 
it's been months teasing one of these guys is going to turn and ultimately nobody does like everybody acts kind of dickish for the next couple months and then they kind of just drop it all no but i think nobody's willing to turn heel it's like, really it's really interesting that they turn this kind of into hogan and savage and luger and sing like luger and sing just fall right back into that best friendship that they've always had everywhere that they've been together even though Sting should not trust Lex Luger. No. He should do it. And Luger does, like, some amazing, like, subtle heel work where he's a heel, but Sting doesn't realize it. Like, Sting never sees it when Luger does something heelish. Luger will be, like, cutting a heel promo, and then Sting will show up, and suddenly Lex is being all goody-goody. Oh, Hogan with the shove. Are we going to do it right now? Hold him back. Hold him back. I can see all of Sting's cock and balls through his shorts. <laughs> and that's where we leave the show. Uh, I think we're going to go back to the announcers here for a wrap. Okay. Yeah. Look at the puppy! Oh, has his little chihuahua in a Satan outfit. <laughs> it is like he has summoned adorable Satan here to the show. And so for next week, they're teasing Hogan versus Luger, uh, the debut of Sabu and Michael Wall Street. I do like the kind of stinger of them kind of teasing us with what's coming next week. I I kind of like the way they do they do they did the intro where they went to the announcers who ran down what's coming tonight, and now we do the outro. We go back and they go over here's what we've got coming next week. Like this is, and here we are with that one last shot. Of just this beautiful venue. And, and then we're pro- out. I gotta say, I think that was about as good a debut as you could have hoped for. Like, not only is it a really great debut, not only does it, like, really put an excellent foot forward, but it, I gotta say, like, a tight 45 minutes is the perfect way to watch wrestling, is it not? God, that's a refresher compared to slogging through three hours of Raw. I kind of... Kind of wish AEW was going with with a one-hour show, but can't turn down the ad revenue of two hours. It's just so awesome to, like, even a bad 10-minute match, who cares? Like, it's only 45 minutes. Like, we're in and out. It's fine. Yeah. And, like, that teaser. You only, I mean, you get the top guys, but you don't get too mum. You're going to see different people every week rather than the same guys over and over. I love it. It's just, and... We've mentioned this on a lot of podcasts before, but like the most important thing you can do is give somebody a reason to watch next time. Like at the end of a pay-per-view, there should be something pulling you through to Raw the next day. At the end of Raw, there should be something pulling you through to the pay-per-view. Like if you're not doing that, if you're just presenting a show with no pulls at anywhere in it to following shows, you're not doing your job. The job of every show is to sell the next show. And this show sold the fuck out of not just the next show, but the concept of Nitro in general. Yeah, I look, I, if AEW hits a home run like this, I'll be very impressed. This is a high standard to live up to. Yeah, I'd, just with the extra hour, it's going to be almost impossible for them to actually manage yeah. to do anything this tight. But if they just deliver something that gets people talking like this did, yeah. just the Luger surprise is so important in wrestling history because yeah. it make people buzz. That a- whole time shit moment. We're live and who knows what's going to happen. 
And the whole wrestling world turned and looked at Nitro. And then people who weren't part of the wrestling world started to look as things got more interesting. And then it just built and it built and it built. And the entire rest, like we've, I think we mentioned at some point that like, this is the template for Raw now. This is the template for wrestling television. They invented it right here. Eric Bischoff worked this same template on almost every single show, almost every single episode of Nitro ever. And it basically created the modern television product. It's just, it's brilliant. I don't know who all was involved, who all was involved on the production end, who all was involved in the booking end. But fuck's sake, man, that's a perfect hour of television, with the exception of the 10 minutes in which Hulk Hogan was wrestling. Yeah. Um, all in all, tremendous show. Really fun to revisit that and, you know, just relive what... Uh, I can only imagine how fun it would have been to watch this live and just see a new world open up. And by the time this airs, we will have seen, um, you know, AEW and we will know whether or not they can live up to this standard. They've got a lot to try to keep up with. I am hopping on a diesel train from Toledo, Ohio to Washington, D.C. to next Tuesday to take myself to the very first one. I will have much to report, believe me. Oof. So yeah, all that and more next time on the Lawcast. <laughs>